It was on Thanksgiving Day in the year 2012 that a gentleman by the name of Marvin Verwis, Marvin Verwis, he was 95 years of age, been married to Grace for 66 years. On Thanksgiving Day 2012, um, Marvin went with his wife Grace to the emergency room where the doctors informed Grace that her husband Marvin had only a few days left to live. And when Marvin asked her why they were not leaving the hospital after their tests, she told him um, what they told her. He had cancer of the blood and they were not able to operate. Am I going to die? He asked. Grace said, Marvin, we're all going to die. And I may die before you but it looks like that you're going to go before me. So now we need to look towards heaven. From now on, let's talk about heaven. I wonder what it was they talked about. I wonder if they talked about the ascension of Christ. I wonder if Grace read Marvin, uh, that passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 1, That event in Jesus' ministry where he stepped from this earthly realm into the heavenly realm where he was coronated and seated as the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. He didn't fly off into outer space like Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond. The clouds weren't spaceships. Rather, he stepped from this visible space into the invisible space of his heavenly Father. I wonder if they talked about that. I wonder if they talked about uh, their life on earth as a time of preparation for the ultimate destination in the new heavens and the new earth. And I wonder if they talked about their destiny. The destiny being a resurrected life in a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. We will not, I repeat, not be disembodied spirits floating and fluttering about in a wispy, spirity, haunted realm. The Bible teaches the renewal of all things. A resurrected earth, a real Tangible, sensory, physical, immortal earth inhabited by God's people in a real, tangible, physical, immortal bodies. I wonder if they talked about that. We've been talking about that, haven't we? The hope for heaven is not some wispy, spirity, Floating existence in clouds and wings and halos and harps. No offense to harpists. (laughs) You're going to have a body. That's B-O-D-Y. But here's the nagging fear that I have. You know, we live in such an entertainment-saturated culture. We have such limited attention spans The moment I say heaven and eternity, there's this nagging fear that we're just going to be bored. I'm thinking of the person who imagined his life in the afterlife. 
You know, in his heaven, all he had to do was think of something and poof, it happened. So he wanted to live in a mansion. So poof, I mean, there appears this incredible mansion, 15 bedrooms, three stories, servants instantly available to meet his every need. Well, of course, a place like that needs cars. So he imagines a fleet of fancy vehicles, the finest wheels money can buy. Poof, there they are. And several of the best instantly appear. And so he's free to drive himself around or he's free to sit in the back of the limo and have himself chauffeured there in the back of that mafia wrapped glass. And he can just go wherever he wants to go. And he does. But after that, he gets hungry. He needs a good meal. Poof, this incredible, sumptuous, mouth-watering meal with all of the aromas and the beauty, I mean, which he eats alone. But then, you know, there's something more that he wants for his happiness, right? So finally, you know, he gets so bored, he gets so unchallenged, he says to one of the servants, he says, you know, I just, I I want out of this. I want to create something again. I want to be challenged. I want to be exhilarated. He said, he said, the fact is, I'd rather be in hell than here. To which the servant quietly responded, well, where do you think you are? I think that's our fear about heaven. We think heaven means getting whatever it is we want and then getting it for all eternity and then imagining how long it would take for us to get bored with it all. Is that it? Is that heaven? Would you have to invent death in your ideal invented heaven? We, we want heaven without death, but we want heaven without boredom. And, and, you know, we're a lot like kids around the Christmas tree. What's their first question after opening their last gift? Is this all? Huh? Is this all? What, are you greedy? No, they're not greedy. They're just hungry. Hungry for that which will ultimately satisfy So let's look at some verses that will ultimately satisfy. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the last book of Scripture, the book of Revelation. And I'd like you to turn to the last chapter, last chapter of the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to be reading verses 3, 4, and 5. You'll find that on page 1042 of your church Bibles. And in these verses, the Apostle John speaks of the, of the character, the environment, the atmosphere of heaven, what heaven is like, and then the Apostle John speaks of the activities of heaven. Here's what heaven is like, and then here's what we're going to do. Here's what we will actually be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. And let me just front load what it is we're going to see. It's our big idea for the day. Here it is. Here it is. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will worship, serve, and reign in the presence of God and in the absence of sin. I'll say that again. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will worship, serve, and reign in the presence of God and in the absence of sin. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. Did you see it? The, the, the environment, what heaven's going to be like? Huh? The climate? Sin absent, God present. That's what it's going to be like. That's what's going to be the atmosphere. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that no longer will there be anything accursed. Meaning, as it is right now, things are cursed. See, Revelation chapter 22 shows us an urban garden temple. An urban garden temple. It's in the last chapter of the Bible. Well, in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, there's another garden. A garden temple. Our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, had everything they could ever want. They had community with God. They had community with one another. They had community with their environment. They were royal priests in the garden temple. And somewhere in this forest park of Eden, God placed one tree and said, stay away from that tree. Don't touch it. Don't eat the fruit of it. It was a test of love. But instead of serving God in blissful community, our spiritual ancestors wanted to be God, and their poor choice left cataclysmic consequences, and as a result, things fall apart. How else do you explain what's wrong with this world? People say, well, what we need is more education. Well, education is good. This is a university community. Education's helped change my life. At the same time, at the same time, there are educated politicians and former politicians right now under indictment, and our state seems to be leading the pack. What's wrong with this world? Well, there's a creator, and we're the creation, and there's been a rebellion, and as a result, we're accursed. And nothing remains untouched by the fall. Nothing. Government, business, education, the arts, the weather, natural resources, family, our, even our own perception of, of ourselves. Because we've tried to be who we're not, we don't know who we are. And things fall apart because things are cursed. But would you imagine a place where there's no curse? Can you imagine the absence of sin? Can you imagine relationships where there's absolutely no deception whatsoever, no hiding, no manipulating the truth? Can you imagine going to work in an environment with absolutely no trace of evil, no backstabbing, no gossiping, no throwing someone under the bus, no one-upsmanship? I mean, what would that be like? What would, what would no longer will there be anything accursed look like where you work and where you live? And what would it be like to have nothing accursed about my life? You see, I can, I can complain about all the ways that our world is accursed out there. But what about in here? What about in my heart? 
I, I find myself more and more frustrated with the effects of the curse in my life which means I'm tired of having to go back and apologize to people for doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing or saying the right thing in the wrong way. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of having to say I'm sorry. I'm tired of disappointing others. I'm tired of falling short. I'm tired of the guilt. I'm tired of the regret. Verse 3 is a promise. No longer will there be anything accursed. Take the curse of sin out of creation. And what do you have? You have new creation. And in this new earth, sin will be absent and God will be present. That's verse 4. They will see his face. They will see his face. In the kingdom of Persia, according to Esther chapter 1, verse 14, There were only seven individuals who had unrestricted access to see the face of the king. In heaven, we will have unrestricted access to see the face of God. In heaven, we will enjoy what was denied Moses. Remember in Exodus chapter uh, 33, uh, Moses said to the Lord, I want to see your glory, Lord. God said, when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Oh, in heaven, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will be an everyday experience. We will walk every day in the light of his presence. The psalmist sang, happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. And then there's that phrase, his name will be on their foreheads. What's that about? Well, that's about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. When the Hebrew people of old were told to put uh, verses of the law in little boxes, and these boxes were to be tied around their foreheads and around their hands. Why? As a sign, as a symbol. I belong to God. I am His. I don't get to choose my identity My identity is in him. And furthermore, I don't have to worry about where I stand with God. I don't have to worry that he might carry this low-grade level of irritation about me. Listen, God's not mad at me. He delights over me. He sings over me. That's the environment of heaven. I mean, it's apparent at the park, delightfully watching their child play. It's a mom at her son's ball game. It's a dad at his daughter's graduation. It's a father walking his daughter down the aisle. That's my child. That's my son. That's my little girl. They're protected. They're secure. They live under the watchful eyes of love. Now, if you feel that way about your family or your child or your grandchild, how do you think your heavenly father feels about you? You see, that's the environment. Sin absent, God present. What's boring about that? Oh, there's more. There's more. 
Because you see, in this environment of love before the face of God and in the absence of all evil, these verses teach us what we'll be doing for all eternity. And there's two key activities, and here they are, serving and reigning. Serving and reigning. Look at verse 3. His servants will worship him. The new heavens and the new earth will resonate with self-forgetful, Christ-saturated worship. See, part of what makes even our worship experience here now is just, is just stepping in the front door. Maybe you're here for the first time, and, and as you came in the front door, you're wondering, okay, what's going to happen here? You know, uh, how am I going to come across, or what, what, what will others think when they see me? What, what, you know what? If you're here for the first time, you're experiencing what all of us have at one time or another experienced, the experience of you know, being first, coming here first. But in the new heavens and the new earth, You you will be so transfixed on the face of Christ that you won't be self-conscious in any way, shape, or form. And at last, at last, you'll get to do there what you've longed to do most here. Listen, ask any mature believer what he or she longs for most in this life. And he or she will tell you that it's just pleasing God. It's being a God pleaser. I want to give God pleasure. I want to make him smile. Mature believers hunger for that. They hunger to worship God. Mature believers want to worship him publicly and privately. Mature believers see Sunday uh, not just as their only time of worship, but all throughout the week that they worship God uh, by giving him glory in the way they do their work. Because worship is giving all that you are to all that God is. And that affects how they do their work, that affects their attitude, that affects their temperament, their discipline, their integrity, their relationships. Worship is giving all that you are to all that God is. And mature believers often feel the frustration of wanting to improve their expression of gratitude to their loving Heavenly Father. I'm thinking of that greatest cellist of all times, Pablo Casals, who at 93 years of age kept practicing his cello for three hours every day. And when asked why at 93, he still continued to work so hard at the fundamentals of his art, he replied, because I'm beginning to notice some improvement. That's what I'm talking about. Mature believers are always looking to make improvement and progress in their service to God. They're always wanting to enlarge their giving to God. They're always desiring to deepen their devotion to God. They often feel frustrated because, you know, they wish they could do a better job at conveying their gratitude to God. They wish they could play and sing better. They wish they had more time and energy to serve. They long to find ways to multiply and expand the expression of their appreciation to their loving Heavenly Father. They often feel like their hearts are too small, that language is too limited, and that their lives can't fully convey the type of worship that would do justice to the splendor and majesty of God. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you felt that way? Well, to these longings, Jesus cries out, hang on. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, in glorified, resurrected bodies, what you've longed to do most will finally come true. In the absence of evil, 
In the presence of God, you will receive the expanded capacity to do in the new heavens and the new earth what you've longed to do most here. With perfected bodies and glorified abilities, you will be able to play and sing and worship and express praise to God like never before. Some of you come here each Sunday frustrated that you can't carry a tune. Just wait. Just wait. There will come a day when you will sing like an angel and you will love it. And everybody else will too. Everything about our resurrected life and our resurrected bodies on the resurrected earth will be deeper and stronger and better. Our worship will deepen. Our service will deepen. Our labor will deepen. Even our rest will deepen. And you will be joined by billions of other believers who are as equally fired up about joining you in those activities. Heaven will be a place of selfless service in a Christ-centered and Christ-saturated world. Oh, and there's more. There's more. In heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, God will let us do with competence what we have been so incompetent at here. That's verse 5. And they will reign forever and ever. They will reign. What does that word mean? It means reign. It means to rule. It means to govern. It means to exercise dominion. Now, democracy-loving Americans, we almost wince at the thought uh, of this. And we all know why. We've lived in a world of self-promoting politicians We didn't like the job one king was doing, so we staged a revolution. We've had enough of abusive and ineffective leadership. We've seen twisted and abusive power and authority. It's hard to imagine what God's original intent was for power. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll finally get to practice God's original, unblemished purpose for power. Church family, God created power for the flourishing of others, for the flourishing of society, for the flourishing of relationships, for the flourishing of families. God's original intent was for his people to occupy his earth as his representatives. God's original intent was the expansion of God-exalting societies where we would exercise creativity and imagination and intellect and skills. Listen, when you die, you're not going to become an angel. You will judge angels. Paul says such in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? This is not some sort of kooky, randy theology. 
This this is not new age mysticism. This is not cosmic oneness with the universe. This is an objective reality where God shares the management responsibilities of the new heavens and the new earth forever with his children. When I lived in Ohio, a friend of mine was a pilot. And uh, one evening he took me up in his single engine Cessna. And I got to tell you, I was like a kid in a candy store, looking out the window and looking around the cockpit, and it was amazing. And then my friend did this. He turned to me, and he offered me the steering wheel. He said, care to try it out? (laughs) Wow! It was a blast. And he had this big brother, uh, almost fatherly joy at watching me fly the plane. Imagine a world where leadership and service are activities full of joy in which the exercise of power leads to creation-wide flourishing. To paraphrase a thought from author and philosopher Dallas Willard, he poses this question, how many cities could I now pilot under God? Uh, If Baltimore or Ferguson or Champaign-Urbana were turned over to me with all the resources and power to do what I want with it, how would things turn out? What would flourishing look like under my governorship? And what you need to understand, the exercising of dominion is not just in the area of municipal or state or national government, but in all disciplines and vocations. So, for instance, some of you may say, well, Randy, you know, in, in this life, I was in construction. Are you saying that I'm going to be in construction in the new heavens and the new earth? Why not? A God is a builder, isn't he? He's a creator, isn't he? His is an ever-expanding kingdom. You say, well, Randy, I was in education. Are you saying that I'll teach and do research in the new heavens and the new earth? Why not? Is not all truth God's truth? No matter the discipline and even in the new heavens and the new earth. You will never be all-knowing, but you will be ever-learning. You say, well, Randy, I was in music and in arts. Great, I can't wait to hear you sing. I want to see your paintings and sculptures and landscaping. Randy, well, I was in computer technology. Fantastic. I want to see the ever-advancing technological progress in the world to come. But Randy, I was a funeral director. Sorry, you're going to be unemployed. (laughs) Can't please everybody. (laughs) Friends, Servant leadership is a reward, not a punishment. And this idea is foreign to those who hate their jobs in a broken, fallen world only to put up with it until retirement. God offers something better. He offers more responsibilities, increased opportunities, along with great abilities and resources and wisdom and empowerment. We'll have sharp minds and strong bodies, a clear purpose, and everlasting joy. And yes, yeah, in the new heavens and the new earth, for some of us, it will, it will mean a career change. Oh, but the best is yet to come. Think about it. In heaven, we will be servants who rule and rulers who serve. And isn't that just like Jesus? The servant king, the one who stepped into our world 
with his almighty power so that we would flourish. Is there any other reason why God would share his regal authority other than the sheer fatherly joy of saying, try it out. And then he watches with joy the amazement on our faces at the thrill of piloting the operations of the universe. Why would he do this? Because of need? No. Because of love. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Was born about that. Now here's the deal. You don't have to wait until the new heavens and the new earth to begin serving and leading the way God wants you to. You can start right now. You can start right now giving all that you are to all that God is. You can start right now using whatever influence at whatever level of authority and leadership you have for the flourishing of others. You can start right now. You can start right now being the fulfillment of that portion of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because ultimately, heaven is not us going up out there. God is bringing heaven with him at the appearance of our King Jesus. God's bringing him here to recreate the new heavens and the new earth. Now the dwelling place of God is with us. You don't have to wait until then. You have already been given a taste of heaven. Now the promised Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in your life, who is a deposit guaranteeing that the best is yet to come. And so the Apostle Peter says, since you are waiting for this, Be diligent to be found by him without spot, without blemish. And then Peter says, this is so important, and at peace. Is your soul at peace having received all that's been promised? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In a way, I've just been mumbling here, trying to explain to you what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to worship, serve, and reign in the presence of God and in the absence of sin. There is nothing boring about that.
His name was William, William Dyke. And when he was 10 years of age, he became blind. Uh, and when he was in his 20s, he attended graduate school in England, and he met uh, this lovely young lady. She was the daughter of a British admiral. They fell in love. They decided to marry. But before the admiral agreed to give his daughter's hand in marriage, he insisted that William submit to a rather risky surgery to restore his sight. And William agreed. (laughs) But he himself had his own condition. He did not want the gauze removed from his eyes until the moment he met his bride at the altar. He wanted her face to be the first thing that he beheld on their wedding day. And so the surgery took place. The wedding day was set. And William's father led his son um, to the front. And the father of the bride led his daughter down the aisle. Nobody knew if the surgery was going to be successful. But William's father stood behind his son and unwound the gauze from his eyes. And when William's bride stood before him, the last strand of gauze was pulled away, and he was face to face with his bride. And he stood there speechless. And everyone waited, breathless. And then he said, At last, at last, one day that will happen to us. Only the roles will be reversed. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. One day, the bride of Christ, that's us. The church of the living God, near blind now, will stand before her bridegroom at the wedding feast, and the veil will be removed, the scales will fall away, and we will see him face to face. And we will know him even as we are fully known And he will be more beautiful than we have imagined. And we will say, at last, at last. 